This week on Developer Weekly. There are two main things that are important for quantum computing. Uh, that is superposition and quantum entanglement. Hey friends, are you stressed, burnt out, or on your way to burnout? Or do you just want to become healthier? My new course will teach you what stress is and how to recognize a burnout and also how to prevent it and recover from it by working on the pillars of health like sleep, food, exercise, clean living and active relaxation and also by changing your life, your work, relationships and your environment. Even if you are not burnt out or stressed, you can use these tactics to become healthier and live a longer and happier life. Check the course out at azureberry.com burnout. And if you don't have access to Pluralsight, reach out to me on Twitter or email and I'll send you a 30-day free trial code that you can use for this course and all other Pluralsight courses. Again, check it out at azureberry.com burnout. Welcome to another episode of Developer Weekly. This week I'm talking with Richard Versluis about quantum computing. Richard is a principal systems engineer at TNO and engineer lead of the quantum computing division at QTech, the cooperation between the University of Delft and TNO. The missions of the quantum computing division is to build scalable prototypes of a quantum computer. And Richard is also the system architect of Quantum Inspire, Europe's first public online quantum computing platform. Thank you very much for being on the show, Richard. Yeah. How are you doing? Yeah, fine. Thank you. So uh, are quantum people also working from home now? Uh, yes, they are. Not all of them. So uh, <laughs> we have quite some people that uh, have to work in the lab, uh, run experiments, uh, work on the equipment. Uh, but actually, uh, most of the work that I'm doing is from uh, from home. Ah, okay. Yep. Through the magic of the internet. Yes. Yeah. So how did you ever get involved in the world of quantum computing? Well, that, that started uh, about five to seven years ago, I think. Um, in, in 2014, um, the QTEC cooperation between TNO and the University of Delft was uh, started. And at that time, I was working at uh, TNO as a principal uh, engineer, uh, working mainly on uh, uh, hardware systems uh, for EOV uh, lithography, a lot of work with uh, with ASML, for instance. Uh-huh. And um, I got involved into quantum computing uh, by just hearing about it. And I thought, well, this sounds like such a neat uh, subject to uh, to work on. Uh, let's see if I can do some uh, some work on uh, on that. So um, yeah, I, I got involved into uh, to QTech, uh, doing some support activities there first, and then later uh, doing uh, uh, engineering uh, activities in developing uh, prototype quantum computers. Wow! And that was mainly because of interest, because the subject is uh, is so interesting. Uh, I think everybody wants to know how quantum computers work, and I also want to know how quantum computers work. And now I'm actually building one. <laughs> That's the dream, isn't it? Yes. It's, uh, it's such an exciting uh, topic. I, I do agree. I feel like, you know, quantum computing, I've, I've uh, dived into it a little bit for a small course that I've created. Mm-hmm. And it's such an exciting topic because I really feel that this is going to be such a big part of the future. Yeah. And yeah. Let, let's see if that's actually true and, and when that actually is, because I can't wait for that to happen. Okay. Maybe we can uh, get into quantum computing as this is a a relatively short podcast and Mm -hmm. this is a very complicated topic. So (laughs) the big question is, 
can you explain how quantum computers work? <laughs> yes, I, I can uh, give it a try. So some of the things that uh, I will explain are quite counterintuitive. So mm-hmm. sometimes it, it takes some some uh, bending of your mind to actually uh, uh, allow your mind to uh, uh, to understand it. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are there are two main things that are important for quantum computing. Uh, that is superposition and quantum entanglement. Mm. Um, and I can try to explain them both uh, in a relatively short amount of time. So in classical computing, uh, we are all familiar with working with uh, bits. And uh, if you have uh, bits, they are either zero or one. It's very simple. Uh, but actually, when you look at the core of a of a transistor, then uh, it's actually quite neat how you make a zero and a one because it's actually analog signals that you're working with. And um, uh, we all think in zeros as one as numbers, but they're actually signals. So mm-hmm. a zero can be, for instance, uh, be zero volt and, and a one can be five volt signal, but they're actually analog signals. And, and you just discriminate between those two by measuring uh, the voltage and determining, okay, it's more than 4.9. So let's call that a one and it's less than uh, 0.0. So let's call that a zero. Uh-huh. In, in quantum computing, you have something which is called a quantum bit or, or qubit. And a qubit is also a analog or let's say continuous system. So it's not a digital system, but it's a continuous system. And it's more or less like an, an I always explain it as an, as an arrow uh, that is pointing uh, on a sphere. Uh, so it can, can point to the North Pole or it can point to the South Pole, pole or it can be somewhere on the equator or any location on, on the Earth. And those are all the positions or the states that a qubit can have. And what we do in quantum computing is we call the the North Pole, for instance, a zero and the South Pole a one, but yeah. it can all be, also be somewhere in between. So when it's on the equator, it's like it's halfway between a zero and a one. And that is called superposition. So it's like it's being in two states at the same time, but also with a certain amount of zero-ness and, and oneness. <laughs> so for instance, if we would look at Holland, uh, it would be closer to the North Pole than to the South Pole. So it would be like 75% zero and 25% one. Right. And that's called superposition. And um, that's already quite amazing because then people say, well, this is also the same, like you have two bits and uh, you have uh, probably associated to, to one of those bits being in a certain state, but it's, it's different from this because if you measure a qubit, if you want to know the state it is in, you always get a digital value out of it. So it doesn't right. matter where it is, whether it's on the North Pole or the South Pole, Pole or on the equator, when you measure it, it gives you back a, a value, a zero or a one, uh, with a probability determined by how close it is to one of these positions, the North Pole or the South Pole. And not only that, uh, the strange thing is that when you measure it, also the actual state changes. So when you measure that it is a zero, the actual state also goes to the North Pole. So the arrow, the location that you were on Earth, it's like you're jumping from Holland immediately to the North Pole uh, after the measurement. Um, And that is superposition. And but superposition is not enough to explain how quantum computers work. So, so let me try to uh, see if I understand superposition. Yes. Um, so is it then like a qubit can be in multiple states at the same time? Or is it just in 
0.5, let's say. Yeah, yeah, it's more, it's not in multiple states at the same time. It is in a special state, uh, which is not digital. That's more right. how you should see it. Yeah. Uh, and, right. And, yeah. and it's not really comparable to an analog signal that might be a voltage between uh, 0 and 5, which might be 2.5. It's a very different special position. Yeah, and there, there are two things special about it. So one is the uh, the measurement effect, which I just called. So if mm -hmm. you measure a analog signal and it's 4.5, it stays 4.5. Right. And it doesn't go magically to 5 volts or 0 volts after yeah. you measure it. Uh, a qubit does this magical trick. So it, it can be, at, let's say, at, at 4.5 volt. And when you measure it, uh, it will say I'm 5 volt or, or I'm 0 volts. But it will also go to that value. Right. That's one yeah. thing. And the other thing is it has two components to it. So it's, it's on, a, on a globe. And it actually has like uh, an, an altitude and a latitude or uh, as we call it, uh, an amplitude uh, and a phase associated to the qubit. Yeah. And uh, as it turns out, it's also these two uh, factors, amplitude and phase, that are very special for quantum computing and that you can do to do some, that you can use to do some amazing things with. Ah, okay. So there's an additional uh, dimension. To yeah, the there's value. an additional dimension. So actually it has two dimensions okay. instead of one dimension. All right, let's just uh, accept that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then let's talk about the next thing. Yeah, because entanglement is another thing that you need uh, to do quantum computing, or at least to do quantum computing in such a way that it, it can be better than classical computing, and that is entanglement. Mm -hmm. uh, suppose now you have two different uh, qubits, um, and uh, you have to imagine something uh, physical to that. So let's say it's, uh, uh, it's both are an electron, because that's uh, one of the types that a lot of people know. Um, so an electron is like a particle, a very small particle. Um, but suppose you have these two electrons and they are both acting like a qubit. So you can, can put them in a zero state or a one state or mm -hmm. somewhere in between. Uh, you can also entangle them, and which means that physically you bring those two electrons close together. They start to interact. Um, and then they get into a state where you no longer describe both electrons independently as a system with two dimensions, but you get a four-dimensional system. So it's actually a globe that you cannot really visualize anymore because try to imagine a globe in four dimensions. <laughs> um, but it's something like that. And uh, the state of the two electrons are no longer independent. So you cannot say I have one electron in a certain superposition state and I have another electron in a superposition state. No, they are depending on each other. Even if you take them apart, you can take them away millions of, uh, of light years uh, from each other. But when they are entangled, uh, they can stay entangled and they have this special correlationship. So what now can happen is that, uh, for instance, if you measure one qubit to be zero, so it is halfway between zero and one, and the other one is also halfway between zero and one. But if you measure one to be zero with a probability of 50% and you measure the other qubit, then by definition, the other one will also show a zero. So it will also mm -hmm. collapse to this zero state, which is also like a magical trick. It's some, something, some uh, almost like they, they know of each other. They know of each other's existence and they know what state the other one is in. But actually they do not really know about each other. They're just one system. Right. 
Hmm. Do we actually know how that works? Is there a physical connection between them? Um, we do know partly how it works, but actually nobody really knows how it works. <laughs> so all the experiments that you do, uh, they show this, and you can mathematically describe it uh, relatively easily. Um, and you can do experiments to verify this. Um, but there was one great scientist, uh, which was called uh, Richard Feynman, who worked a lot on quantum computing. And he once said, if you think you understand quantum mechanics, then you don't understand it. <laughs> so it's actually like, you cannot understand it. You cannot, you cannot really grasp the forces that are present that, that actually right. do this. You just have to accept that it works this way. Right. But the special thing about superposition and entanglement uh, comes when you put them all together. Okay. Uh, so imagine a, a classical qubit register with, uh, with three bits. Um, then this classical register can be uh, represents a, a number like a 000 or 001. So it can be any number between zero and seven. Yeah. Um, by using superposition and entanglement, if you have a three qubit register, uh, you can also bring this into a, uh, a state where it's 000 or 111, but it can also be like the first qubit being halfway between zero and one, the second one also between zero and one, the third one also between zero and one. And when they're all fully connected as well, fully entangled, then it's like this cube, this qubit register represents all values between zero and seven at the same time. Wow. And that is where the power comes from, because when you then start to do things with this qubit register, for instance, add it to another register, it's not like you're adding two values. No, you're adding eight values to eight other values at the same time. Right. Or you're multiplying them or you do other activities. In them. So this is this gives huge parallel computing power, as we, uh, we call it, because if you add another qubit, you no longer have, have can represent eight values, but you can represent 16 values and then 32, 64. And this is what gives you the power of quantum computing. So um, again, let me try to see if I understand that. Yeah. Because that is all, you know, it's, uh, it's complicated stuff. So let's say I have a problem like uh, I have a software application that tries to calculate a route from uh, Breda to Amsterdam. Yep. Uh, in classical computers, it might try several possibilities of that route. It will yes. try it uh, through Utrecht, through uh, uh, Rotterdam, and see which one is faster and better for the user. Yeah. Uh, so that takes a while, and that might just that's constrained by how many possibilities I can try out at the same time, right? Yeah. So in quantum computing, is it then the case that because I can use more uh, possibilities at the same time? that it could solve this type of problem way faster than a classical computer. Yeah, this is this is typically the type of problems that you can solve faster with a quantum computer, in principle, because there's a lot of technical challenges. Uh, <laughs> um, but in principle, yes, this is the type of problems, and there are more types of problems that you can solve faster. But because of this reason, because you can calculate with qubits, which represent, let's say, a very multi-dimensional state, which represents all of the possible uh, routes or the possible solutions. And you can just work with all of them at the same time and not sequentially, but in yeah. parallel. Yeah. Ah, right. So um, why don't we then just use more classical computers? 
Um, well, in the end, you're limited by uh, mainly the amount of memory that you have in, in classical computers. So um, you could say, well, you could also do this in a parallel way on, on classical computers, yeah, right? Use, yeah. use one classical computer to, to try out one route and another one to try out the second route. But the, this is really a combination, combinatorial problem. And if you start to calculate how many possible solutions there are, for such a yeah. simple problem already, going from Redra to, to Rotterdam or whatever, it's it's a huge amount of memory that you need. And mm. uh, this is the strength of quantum computers because the information depth that you have, have in a set of entangled qubits is enormous. If you have uh, 50 qubits, uh, I don't know the exact number by heart, but if you would like to represent 50 entangled qubits in a classical way, um, you would need many, many terabytes, petabytes, or whatever. It's mm. it's it's something. It's yottabytes. Mm. I don't know what exactly it is. <laughs> uh, but you need more computing power than than we currently have available in Holland, for instance. And wow. just by adding another qubit, if you want to represent that system, you need to double the classical amount of of computing power. Wow. So. Yeah, so uh, quantum computers are so powerful because they can use this quantum state to do many things at the same time. Yeah. And they can then scale exponentially, which classical computers can't yes. in a practical way. Yeah. And and this, the, the example that we just had calculating a route, is a super simple example because there are obviously problems that are multitudes more um, challenging and uh, and complex than that. Well, yeah, there's not problems only in logistics, but also, for instance, in uh, detection, like uh, fraud detection or anomaly uh, detection, um, where you have to uh, find a, a certain pattern or something which is uh, 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 not in agreement with a regular pattern, which is more like the negative uh, thing of, uh, of, of saying how you do fraud detection. Um, and there are problems like uh, machine learning, uh, where quantum systems can give a great advantage um, because there also you need to process a lot of data. You have to learn from different uh, uh, different training sets, for instance. And, you, and if you can process multiple training sets at the same time, uh, that would be very handy. But also this probabilistic nature of, of qubits by itself already lends itself quite well for, for instance, uh, machine learning types of uh, things. Because also in machine learning, usually the systems don't give you a very definite answer, like, yes, this is a cat or this is a dog when you analyze pictures. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, there's a 90% chance that this is a cat and a 10% chance that this is a dog. Well, you can imagine with a, with a system that consists of qubits where you have this multi-dimensional state, um, you can represent all these parameters that, that say, this is typically a dog or this is typically a cat. And yeah. if in a lot of these dimensions, uh, your, your vector is pointing to a cat uh, and you measure the state of that qubit, then the chance that it collapses to a state that represents a cat is very high. Ah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So um, this is very exciting. And you just uh, said there are some technical challenges there. How far along is this technology actually? When yeah. will I have one in my house? Yeah, it's a good <laughs> question. Um, and and uh, it's also quite difficult to answer because uh, the field is moving really fast at this moment. So um, five years ago, uh, when people started talking about quantum computers, uh, they were thinking like, okay, in, in 10 years, we might have a quantum computer that is uh, available and uh, 
that we can do things with that we cannot do classically. Mm-hmm. Um, now we're uh, a, a lot further and we're not there yet. So it's very difficult to make stable qubits. Um, they have something which is called a coherence time, which means that this special state that they have, they naturally tend to go away from that state. Uh, yeah. They want to go to the lowest energy level, which is then a non-entangled, non-superposition state, for instance. Um, so you have to keep them uh, alive. Uh, and to keep them alive, you need more qubits <laughs> because you have then helper yeah. qubits, just like in uh, uh, in error correction, uh, when, you sub- when you send, for instance, classical signals down a, down a wire, down a nosy channel, you need to send extra redundant bits. So in, in this case, you also need extra qubits to, to do the stabilization. Um, but you probably need thousands or millions of qubits uh, to do something with quantum computers that you cannot do classically and which is also useful. Um, on the other hand, uh, we've seen the last couple of years that some companies like, like Google and IBM and, and people in China have reached something which is called quantum advantage. Sometimes they call it quantum supremacy, but because of the uh, negative connotation, <laughs> I'd like to use the word uh, quantum advantage. Um, where they already with a handful of qubits, with 50 qubits or 60 qubits or 70 qubits, can do things that you cannot do classically on a classical computer. Mm. However, it's not really useful yet. Right. So you can, for instance, make a very complex high dimensional state, which you then use to do measurements on. And uh, this gives all these probabilistic uh, outcomes, which is called sampling. And this sampled data has some peculiar properties. And if you want, would like to model this in a classical computer, it would be very difficult because you need yeah. lots of memory. But it doesn't give you any usefulness. You cannot use it to do fraud detection or to to yeah. to determine these routes or uh, to do logistic problems or whatever. So we have to wait a while. Uh, but on the other hand, uh, I think we're very close to having quantum computers that even with hundreds or maybe a couple of hundreds of, uh, of qubits, let's say a thousand qubits, can do things that you cannot do classically that yield some kind of economic advantage, maybe for very, very specific cases. Uh, but we are probably there in a couple of years. Wow, that is very exciting. Yeah. yeah. So uh, these qubits, uh, they have trouble holding their uh, quantum state. Yes. Because of their environment, right? There's there's lots of things that go on. There's particles passing through them. There's uh, uh, temperature, all that type of stuff. Yeah. Will those it's themselves also become better so that you need less qubits for error correction? Um, yes, so uh, there are a couple of things that we can control um, and we don't control them perfectly yet. But for instance, the material properties, if we make mm. uh, quantum chips with more homogeneous materials, uh, we are, are better in control of the uh, uh, the electrodes and the gate uh, dimensions and sizes and all that stuff. Um, we can make some advantage there. We make improvements in shielding of the quantum chips from, for instance, external radiation or thermal radiation. Uh, We are starting to get better and better in controlling them because we need to control them with um, signals which are much more complex than uh, the signals that you use in classical computers. So for instance, we use microwave signals of a couple of gigahertz or you use lasers to control those qubits, which is all much more difficult than, than the uh, digital control. But we're also getting better there, which also uh, uh, 
increases the performance of the qubits. But there are, there are always some things that you cannot get under control, uh, which are external, um, which will at a certain moment be like a limiting factor for uh, for the amount of qubits that you need for error correction. Right. I find okay. it very difficult to to give numbers for that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So you are working on prototypes. Uh, yes. You said uh, other companies like uh, Google and people in China and uh, bigger companies as well are also working on them. Is is now everybody working on this, including governments and big companies? And are is everybody working together to solve this problem? Yeah. Um, well, there there's a, a number of big companies that are working on it. Um, not everybody is working together. Of course, uh, companies <laughs> have their own uh, reasons to not work together with uh, with mm. other people. Um, in Europe, um, there are not a lot of uh, big companies working on quantum computing. It's more left to uh, the academia and uh, knowledge providers uh, like TNO and universities, etc. And there's quite some cooperation in uh, in Europe on this, uh, which sometimes makes it more difficult uh, because you have to do uh, work together with a lot of different uh, people with different viewpoints. On the other hand, uh, we also have the benefit then that we can use quite some workforce and quite some knowledge of all those people to to build quantum uh, computers. Um, And I think governments are probably also working on it, but we do not know everything that governments are doing on this. You can yeah. imagine that some special purpose quantum computers that can do some special tricks like uh, cracking, uh, for instance, uh, uh, RSA codes that are used for uh, uh, encryption of, of data on the internet is of uh, top priority for certain uh, governments. Yeah, I can imagine. Yeah, you can yeah. use this for nefarious goals, definitely. Yeah, yeah. So um, I am a developer, a software developer. I create normal run-of-the-mill applications, forms over data type of stuff. What would I be able to do with a quantum computer? And how would I be able to program against it? Like, how do I control a laser that makes a superposition from my, let's say, C-sharp code? Yeah, well, quantum computers are a little bit at the level where uh, computers were in the 70s and 80s. So we're more or less programming them in assembly language. Uh, one of the languages that we use, for instance, is called uh, CQASM, and uh, the ASM is used for is, is short for assembly uh, mm-hmm. language. So uh, you can imagine it's still the same, like setting a register, uh, changing it from zero to one. Um, it's a little bit different from classical ones uh, because of this non-binary uh, property, mm-hmm. but you don't need to know about lasers Uh, RF signals and all that stuff. You have a programming language to program quantum computers, um, but it's really low level. Uh, But on top of that, you see a lot of uh, companies and institutes working on higher level languages to program quantum computers. So you can generate these QASM languages, these assembly languages from Python or from C++ or whatever. And then you even don't need to know about uh, quantum assembly language uh, but you ne- still need to know about the mathematics that is used to s- write down these mm-hmm. problems. And then uh, these problems need to be compiled into assembly code uh, for the quantum computers. And then within the quantum computers, we take care of the uh, compilation to the control signals, to the micro uh, signals that we use. Ah, okay. So, yeah. as, a, so as we- a computer developer, everybody can start programming a quantum computer. That's very cool. Yeah. I saw that uh, Microsoft, for instance, they have uh, a Q-sharp SDK 
yep. for their quantum computer. It's basically an abstraction as well that then converts into this uh, assembly language. Uh, but still, it can then be very uh, complex. Like you said, you do need to understand the mathematics behind it, right? Um, yes, that really helps. But if you uh, really would like to start off uh, and even without knowing the mathematics, you could, for instance, go even to our own website, uh, Quantum Inspire, um, where you have a visual interface to, uh, to program quantum computers. So you need to know a little bit about this assembly language. Uh, but the, the, the operations that you can do is, is very limited. It's just like 10 or 20 operations that you can do. Mm -hmm. um, and you can just try out for yourself what happens when you put a qubit into a superposition, when you measure it, or you can, uh, there's a command to entangle these qubits, to entangle qubit one and qubit two, and then see what happens when you measure those qubits. And you can actually do it not only on a simulator, but on actual hardware. And they can also see what the limitations oh. of the current hardware are. So you'll see that this entanglement, for instance, is not perfect. So when you do it on a simulator, it's really perfect. But when you do it on hardware, you'll see that it's not perfect yet. Ah, okay. Yeah. Okay, I will definitely put that in the show notes so that people can start playing with that if they want. Sure, yeah. Um, so I guess then one of the, um, the areas that our people might also be working on right now are the um, algorithms that make practical things work yep. for quantum computers, right? Because yes, we can create superpositions with SDKs and, and do all that stuff, but that doesn't do anything practical. Yeah. So um, are you guys also working on practical algorithms? Um, yes, and not me personally, but there's a lot mm. of uh, people in, uh, in QTech, but also in other uh, parts in the Netherlands and in Europe that work on the algorithms. So for instance, in Amsterdam, there's a special institute called QSoft, uh, they work on developing mm -hmm. algorithms. At TNO, we have a department, uh, uh, ICT, which is developing algorithms. I know that in, in Leiden, they're developing uh, all kinds of algorithms. Um, and it's very fun to see how these algorithms work because not all of them are completely quantum. Some of them are hybrid classical oh, quantum. Yeah. So you need to do a little calculation uh, first classically to prepare the state of a quantum system, for instance, then do operations mm. on your quantum system, measure the results, use that results in your classical system, post-process those results, and then determine what the new algorithm should look like. And in this kind of cases, you're almost using a quantum uh, processor, like, like for instance, you would use a GPU as an accelerator type All of right. kind. So you can use a quantum chip as an accelerator. Currently, with the current state of the hardware, you will decelerate your uh, your calculations because we <laughs> don't have enough qubits to actually start working as an accelerator. Uh, but in principle, uh, when you add qubits and you make it stronger and stronger, it will start to work as an accelerator for your classical uh, uh, computations. Wow, that's amazing. So um, will I ever have a quantum computer in my house and will it then... Uh, replace my uh, my classical computer. Yeah, that's almost the same thing that I think was asked to uh, was it the the CEO or CTO of IBM when they <laughs> first developed their uh, their first computers and and he replied something like I don't remember it by heart but I think there's room in the whole world for only five computers but that was at a time that that computers were only used. Um, uh, by by governments or, or some academic institutes, and now everybody has at least ten computers. You have it in your watch, in your phone. Yeah. So um, I really strongly believe um, that people will use quantum computers. Uh, even our generation will will use quantum computers um, 
but maybe not personally that you have it on your desk, uh, but it will be located somewhere else at a computing center or uh, at an HPC right. center or something like that, yeah. uh, dedicated, but never, yeah, never say never because uh, I cannot predict what happens in uh, in 20 or 30 years from now. All right. Yeah. Will they replace classical computers? Um, I don't think so. Um, in principle, uh, quantum computers can do everything that a classical computer can do. Um, so a, a classical computer can basically do a subset of what a quantum computer can do. Quantum computer can do stuff that classical computers cannot. Um, but there's only a very specific subset of problems where a quantum computer will give a speed up. And the speed up can be enormous, but there are lots of problems where a quantum computer will not give a speed up. Uh, so as long as quantum computers are more expensive, more difficult to make, et cetera, than a classical computer, it doesn't make yeah. sense to use a quantum computer to do to solve, let's say, a normal problem. Right. So, so at least for the, the the nearby future, they will coexist. They will definitely coexist. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, okay. And in order to to run a quantum computer, you also need a strong classical computer <laughs> to do all this <laughs> error correction, for instance. Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah. For now, at least. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Wow, this has been uh, fascinating. Uh, okay, we are nearing the end uh, of the episode. Um, is there anything, uh, any last words that you want to uh, uh, tell to uh, to the listeners, like a call to action where they can start playing with the stuff or learn more about quantum computers? Yeah, so like I, like I said, you can try it out for yourself uh, on our on our website. So that's uh, you'll put it in the in your notes uh, www.quantuminspire.com. But what I also like to say is that this this field uh, requires a lot of expertise. It requires a lot of people that want to develop themselves into quantum computing, and you do not necessarily need to know anything about quantum mechanics. Um, there's a lot of uh, work needed to, uh, for instance, uh, do on classical computers to support the development of quantum computers. We need to do simulations. We need to do this error correction. Um, a quantum computer, I think, consists 50% of difficult hardware and 50% of difficult software. <laughs> uh, so there's a lot of work, even if you're not interested in, in using a quantum computer, but if you're interested in contributing to developing a quantum computer, uh, there's a lot, a lot of stuff that needs to be done. So I would like to invite all your listeners, if you're interested in quantum and you want to contribute to it, uh, yeah, uh, dive into it, learn a little bit about it, and, and maybe there's something you can do to actually uh, uh, help develop quantum computers. Okay, well, there you go. Start uh, start helping. <laughs> yeah. Excellent. Well, thank you very much for teaching me about quantum computers today. Yeah, thank you, Barry. And thank you all for listening. And we will talk to you next week. Could you please go to ratethispodcast.com slash developerweekly and rate this podcast and leave a review. This helps me to spread the word about the podcast and helps other people to find it. That is ratethispodcast.com slash developerweekly. Thank you so much. <laughs>